Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. Thank you for staying with us here or calling in and being with us. I'm a little flustered with our music to start. There we go. There's our music. I'm Heather Stark, and I'm the host of the show called Three Women, Three Ways, and we talk about a lot of women's issues. Although my daughter has informed me there is no such thing as a woman's issue, it is people's issue, and I really like that. Um, Today we're talking with a guest about... Uh, women who are violent. You hear it all the time. I mean, I hear it. If you Google something on the Internet, chances are you'll find some sort of statistic or some sort of study that says women are just as violent as men. Women are just as likely to be perpetrators of domestic violence as men. Um, And they'll uh, usually cite some sort of government numbers that uh, are pretty pretty, uh, uh, solid-sounding. And yet I question this. You know, I question this, and so I thought I would contact an expert. And our expert who is with us today is uh, Lisa. Lisa, I'm happy to have you here. <laughs> Thank you. Are you with you Okay, I great. am. Thank you very uh, Lisa much. Is <laughs> Lisa is uh, with us calling from uh, Michigan, and Michigan is kind of my next-door state from where I grew up, which is Ohio. So I'm kind of familiar with that, uh, you know, um, Midwestern kind of, of state, and I'm kind of familiar with the way a lot of people think in those states. And i got to say, I don't know if you agree with this, Lisa, but I think a lot of the Midwestern states are just fine when it comes to these kinds of issues as far as their thinking and accuracy of their thinking. But you also run across people who um, are kind of archaic or make a lot of assumptions specifically about this women being violent toward men. Lisa is, uh, has a long relationship of being with us uh, or doing uh, issues for uh, women and uh, violence against women. Lisa, can you give us a little background as to what brought you to this place? Sure, and first of all, Heather, thank you so much for having me on your show and for having the courage and creating the space to talk about this very critical and oftentimes controversial issue. I came to this work uh, as initially as a volunteer. I was working as, at Jersey Battered Women's Service in Morris County, New Jersey, and I was facilitating groups for survivors of domestic violence and after a short time started working there. And in those groups, many of these women were not living in the emergency shelter. Many were still living in their abusive relationships or recovering from the trauma of having recently ended an abusive relationship. And they were wanting to talk about and many times whisper about having used some sort of violence to navigate their relationship. And there was a real fear as far as discussing use of force or use of violence and what that meant. And also for us as an agency, this agency was very innovative in the way that they thought and still is and and approach social issues. So the administration was thinking, how do we do this? How do we give women a safe place to talk about these issues? And this question is something that's still very much in the forefront of 
of shelters and advocacy organizations across the United States and in many places in the world. I work with an organization in China that is dealing with this very issue. How do we give survivors of domestic violence a safe place to talk about what they've done and how they've navigated their relationships? Well, our conversation in New Jersey, having those the groups, and then from the administrative point of view, how we, how we do that responsibly and thoughtfully, was really um, brought to a critical point when women in our community started getting arrested on domestic violence charges. And one judge in particular told us that if we did not create a quote-unquote batterers program for women arrested on domestic violence, then then that judge would stop sending women, or excuse me, stop sending men to the batters intervention program our agency ran. So we felt in a way like we had our backs against the wall, but we also understood that the women were suffering. They're suffering from shame and blame for what they were doing at the same time that they were trying to heal from and recognize their significant survivorship histories. So I had the opportunity to create the VISTA program, and we we called it the VISTA program because it was an extended view of serving women who had used force. It was grounded in a healing place philosophy where women had the opportunity to recognize what they'd been through at the same time they were considering what they, the tactics that they were using or the physical actions they were using and having the opportunity to safely consider future options. And VISTA okay. then, excuse me? Um, I just wanted to uh, throw in here that um, you, your organization works with women who admit to using violence. Is that... Well, the VISTA is where I started at Jersey Battered Women's Service, and I, um, I started then, I, I moved to Ann Arbor in 2007, and that's where I created the RENEW program, also serving women who had used violence. And that's an interesting thing when you're, you're asking in terms of if the women admit to using the violence. Because there's, I've also and do work with men who perpetrate domestic violence, and there's a, a very significant and distinct gendered behavior when it comes to admitting or talking about use of force or violence. Women come taking complete responsibility for what they've done. Oftentimes, at the time the first responder enters their life, if that responder, first responder is oftentimes police, Women will take complete responsibility for what's happened. And um, more often than not, men who batter minimize, deny, and blame uh, about the actions that they have used, both at the time of the first it's responder her fault. coming. She, she made me do this. She, um, yes. she drove me to this. She, it's, it's all her fault. Or, no, I didn't hit her. No, she's exaggerating. You know, I just, I just stood in front of the door to stop her from leaving. That's all I did. How did she get the bruises? Well, I don't know. Those were there before. So that kind of minimizing, that kind of uh, uh, evasion is what you kind of, you've seen with, with men, whereas with and women it's kind of like, yes, I hit him. Yes, women will very forthrightly say, yes, I hit him. And unfortunately, the bruises 
um, that she suffered are not there at the time that the police come. They don't show up until a few days later. And many times I, I prefer actually to talk about, uh, rather than domestic violence, really focus in and center on coercive control. And men okay. who are uh, practiced at coercively controlling their partner, which is maintaining long-term relationship control and dominance. They never have to use physical violence. And at the time that someone else from outside the culture of that particular relationship, because each, any one of us who's ever been in a relationship knows that that relationship takes on its own culture, its own language, own situational meaning, everything. So many times when the police arrive, his simply being quiet or especially charismatic, is a way to say, I didn't do anything. Sorry that you're here. Sorry I've wasted your time. Whereas she's doing all the work. She's taking complete responsibility. She's crying. She's truth-telling in a way to say, I can't believe I've done what I've done, but yes, I've done it. Get me some help. How can I make this better? And then that travels with her through the, the criminal legal system. Many judges have asked me, why do women tell all those details that in, in essence incriminate them at that time? And it is a belief, a fundamental belief that many women are raised with. I'm not saying all, but and the women that I've worked with, that if I tell the truth and the whole truth, justice will be served. Not understanding that um, being self-protective and selective is so critically important at all stages of this because certainly, and many times again, she's often without legal representation, whereas he usually has the full force of, of the legal system on his side because there's often, again, as we know, all these intersectional issues that, that meet women. It's not only the violence and coercive control. It's economic issues. It's child care issues. It's everything at one time and in many relationships men have the economic advantage and will leverage that if they are men who batter their partners as another form of that coercive control against her yeah so um how often does this happen how often does it happen that women use force i use, use force yeah i think that it's from my perspective and from the work that I do, I'm an intervention and support provider. I am not a researcher, although I do do some qualitative research. I prefer to think of it in terms of each relationship and how the dynamics of that relationship and how it evolves. I think that it's fair to say with an understanding of context and how people navigate their relationships, that many survivors of violence, whether they are male or female, are navigating their survivorship by using violence or force. I, many women who are in shelters have used violence to navigate their relationship. Often the, often the only difference between a woman who would go to a shelter program in contrast to a woman who goes to jail, because oftentimes... The difference there is if the police have been called and what the police officers believe to be their role. Many police, 
many communities are focusing in on since the 1990s, mandatory, preferred, and pro-arrest laws. And many police, depending upon the jurisdiction, understand that someone must be arrested, which is not always entirely true. There must be a primary aggressor investigation looking for where the wounds are, what they look like, interviewing people separately. Many, many factors go into this investigation. But to the credit of police, who have a very difficult job, oftentimes they don't have the time or the tools or the proper training to be able to properly assess who has done what to whom. And we know that in an attempt to equalize the violence, because statistically women are much more likely to be the survivors in a relationship, to equalize what's been done to them, women are more likely to grab a close object to protect themselves. And so when the police come, oftentimes they will see that he has a scratch or he's bleeding And many times it's been her attempt, again, to equalize what's been going on, to defend herself, to say no more. And there are also multiple cases that are less documented of him self-inflicting wounds between the time that the incident happened and the police arrive. So that's something else that we need to be thinking about, and I hope that researchers will be looking at more critically in the, the days and years to come. I'd like to toss out our phone number. Um, I've heard of um, issues of, and people experiencing these kinds of things so frequently. I'd love to have our, some of our listeners call in and either share their experiences or uh, join our conversation about uh, women who use violence. Um, the phone number to call in is 646-378-0430. That's 646-378-0430. Now, we'd love to have you call in and join us. But um, just to reiterate, so what you're telling me, Lisa, is that women who do use force generally use force to protect themselves. Is that, am I reading you right? The women, I can only speak, of course, from the perspective and through the voices of the women that I serve. And after almost 50, after almost 15 years of direct service intervention with, with women who are survivors and who have used force, many do use force as a way to protect themselves and the essence of who they are. But this should not be confused with a legal definition of self-defense. And this is where the work becomes particularly challenging because somehow as advocates and as grassroots anti-violence practitioners, advocates, researchers, we've desperately worked to, to legitimize the criminalization of what happens in intimate relationships, to say this is wrong and... Hey. So, say, simply okay. the, Can you say that in simpler terms? Because you kind of sure. lost me on, on it with some of those... Sure those words the problem is that because you're asking me do women always use are they are they using force in self-defense and i'm explaining that they are using it 
to defend who they are and the essence of their personhood. And if I highly recommend that anyone interested in this and, and domestic violence take a look at Evan Stark's book, Coercive Control, because that really gets to um, the essence of what goes on in these relationships. So, yes, women are defending themselves, and, again, the essence of who they are as human beings after taking tremendous amounts of abuse. And, but that does not necessarily fit the legal definition of, of self-defense. And I was explaining that advocates have long tried to criminalize intimate partner violence, violence against women. But in doing so, we've put a great burden on the criminal legal system. And that's how um, the mandatory arrest laws, which have kept many, many women, battered women, safer and saved many lives, there has been a backlash and a misunderstanding among many police and first responders of what it is to identify the person who is the primary aggressor. And because of those dynamics of coercive control and truly understanding what it is to defend oneself, as advocates, as a practitioner, our role is separate from law enforcement. But we have started to use these terms such as self-defense, victim, perpetrator, offender. These are words from the legal system, and they must remain there. But we need a common language or at least a language that somehow we can have a civil conversation to acknowledge that what is happening to so many women is not against the law. It's not against the law to coercively control your partner. And this coercive control, diminishing who someone is as a human being, is at the heart and soul of what popular culture refers to as domestic violence. And in saying that, I'm explaining that what so many women endure day in and day out is not against the law. But when they say enough, when they say I'm defending the essence of who I am, they are breaking the law in their use of physical force. And it's not okay. It's not okay to physically hurt someone. There needs to be intervention but it needs to be, and the consequences need to be, appropriate. If they're not appropriate, they'll be ineffective, and they'll also be re-victimizing. Okay. So um, you're using some terminology that a lot of us are not familiar with. So um, just to recap, what you're saying is that basically domestic violence is about coercive control, trying to control somebody. Usually, uh, the vast number of times, it is a man trying to control a woman. Now, that coercive control, unless it involves violence, is not illegal. Correct. Okay. So if a woman responds to that coercive control in a physical way, using violence, then she's breaking the law and he isn't. Correct. Is that what... Okay, so if she does respond with a a physical response and the police come, the police say, well, you know, 
you you um, used violence, he didn't, and therefore you are the perpetrator. Correct. And, and from from the yes, and from the police perspective, and if that is indeed what happened, then it becomes an issue where now she's involved in the criminal legal system, and there are multiple unintended consequences of her being a member of that criminal legal system considered as a perpetrator or offender. And this is often the first step in giving the true abuser, the true batterer in the relationship, one more tactic of power and control over her. I've seen in many situations where women who've used force and now say she's on, in, in our area, she'd typically be on probation for two years and she'd be referred to a program such as my program, the Renew program. So now she has a probation agent. Many, in many of these situations, the person who's identified by the legal system as the victim, who as an advocate and practitioner, I know is the true power holder in the relationship, makes false allegations yeah. against her by if she refuses to, say, sign over child custody, if she refuses the divorce, if she refuses, say, for example, to buy drugs for him, he can, will, and has threatened saying, okay, I'll call your probation agent and you will be in violation. I will tell them that you hit me again or that you threw something at me. And this is where people in my role advocates and practitioners who really get what's going on here can be a force of change. Can we operate in this gray area where, yes, I am um, running a program where the majority of the women are court-ordered, but in that middle ground, I can be an advocate for her to explain to the probation agent what's truly going on, who truly has the power. Who was coercing whom to and do what? When you explain that to the probation officers, do they believe it, or do they tend to not believe it, or there doesn't seem to be any consistent response? What What do the probation officers um, do when you explain what's really going on? Well, and that is that's another. Uh, expanded explanation in terms of, first of all, I'm extraordinarily fortunate to work in Washtenaw County, Michigan. Um, I had the opportunity when I came here to do many trainings by judicial invitation. Judge Elizabeth Pollard Hines, who's very active in the Violence Against Women movement, invited all of our community partners to come here, listen to and understand and immerse themselves in understanding what women's use of force in many cases is truly about. We have outstanding probation agents, David Oblak, James Henderson, Christella Scanlon, who really get it and we're on board with getting it. And each, I see each one of us as a critical part of a support network for her, which now it may sound really odd. Okay, she's been arrested. She's considered the perpetrator, the offender. She's on probation. But we, we take it as an opportunity. No, it's not an ideal situation. Nobody wants to be arrested. Nobody should have to be arrested to get these kinds of services. 
But for some reason, at this point in time, this is what we're finding. It's very difficult to reach women with this information before they use the violence. So having the opportunity to advocate for her, having people listen to me, which is a luxury. I know not all advocates and practitioners have that. But also being in a situation where I can offer her resources. I've been able to write recommendations for women to go back to college to help with child care resources, to help with transportation, a whole range of issues. Because, again, when a woman is in a situation where there's an individual who has power over her in all these ways, she needs community resources and supports. She needs people who get it and not only get it, but are willing to be her hands and feet and her voice when she has none, to be able to travel for her, help her in ways that she can then lift herself up. Um, When women are uh, arrested for using force, Yes. Um, is there usually um, uh, a lot of legal action that they have to face later? Because um, I'm thinking um, that not only are they facing a situation where there is abuse um, and control, <clears throat> excuse me, against them, mm-hmm. then they enter this whole legal system where, yes. again, there's control over them. Um, yes. How do women react to that? like double control, that dual, that conflicting control. It is. It's um, again, re-traumatizing. I'm sure it's to generalize. Yes. But. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, it's re-traumatizing. And it's also important to recognize that with a domestic violence charge, if an individual has any kind of job that relies on state licensure, say she's a therapist, say she cuts hair, she takes care of kids, she's a doctor, anything that relies on, relies on state licensure, she'll lose her job with a domestic violence charge. So not only now is she under control from the criminal legal system, oftentimes she finds herself unemployed, and then oftentimes, I mean, it's a full domino effect. Then she can find herself without housing, without child care, without a car. So it it truly is um, insult to injury. It, It keeps going for her. It's not this one isolated event. It's so much more than that. Mm-hmm. Of course, we, you know, all of those drawbacks, uh, we've been hearing those for years from perpetrators who've been arrested on how, you know, this just ruins their entire lives. And um, so, you know, I, in all fairness, that does go both ways, you know, um, to, against both genders who are arrested for uh, domestic violence or interpersonal violence. And, it, um, um, I, I understand that, but it feels uncomfortable to put those in equal terms because uh, from the perspective of a woman who is a survivor, and again, we need to realize that many of the women that I work with, hundreds of women, and I, I'm in touch, I run an international listserv, I'm in touch with people all across the world who dealing with this issue. So many times... I'm thinking of one woman in particular. Maybe she's had her nose broken, her jaw broken. She's done everything to try and get him to stop. She's dropped multiple restraining orders against him. She's afraid to show up at court. And the one time that she uses violence against him, he calls the police and has her arrested. And she loses her job because of this. And so I I do feel uncomfortable with putting that on equal 
um, footing with a person who has utilized coercive control to effectively dismantle not only who someone is as a human being, but their entire lives. Yeah, I understand that point. Um, when um, a lot of stories uh, about these situations have come to my attention and of course they're anecdotal there there's not you know i i don't know that they are representative of a lot of other people's situations but i suspect that they are i'm thinking of a particular situation where a woman um her husband was having an affair he was very controlling she found out about the affair actually he told her and um she was extremely upset extremely upset she yelled at him, and he told her, you know what, why don't you go have a drink, go settle down, we'll talk about this after uh, after you calm down a little bit, go over to your friend Susie's house, and uh, we'll talk about this when you get home. So she did, and she went over to Susie's house, she had a couple of drinks, she started to calm down a little bit, and then she felt that she was ready to go back home. So she went back home, her husband was there waiting for her, and he started to harangue her about her faults and why he um, had an affair and how that was all her fault. And, and um, he said something particularly egregious to her, and she slapped him across the face. Yes. And she said he smiled. As soon as she did that, he smiled, went over and picked yes. up the phone, and reported her as uh, an abuser. She was right. arrested. She had to fight dramatically, just absolutely dramatically fight to have any kind of custody or visitation for her children. Yes. And, um, you know, it, it was a, a very grim situation that impacted her for years and years. And yet she and I agree, he manipulated that situation. Absolutely. He manipulated that. He was knowledgeable enough to know what would happen, and he manipulated that situation so it would happen in exactly the way he wanted it to. Yes. That and that, that's scary. an excellent example, Heather. That's an excellent example of coercive control. He knew exactly what he was doing at every piece of that, and he, he got his way, and he did not physically have to do anything to her. Mm-hmm. She did it for him in yeah. a way. Yes, exactly. Um, mm-hmm. And she said it was just, uh, you know, uh, that was the thing that she could never get over. Um, as she was going through the aftermath, was the smile on his face mm-hmm. when she mm-hmm. hit him in the face. Yeah, you know, and she that's... slapped him. And I gotta say, as a woman of a certain age, we grew up with the the movies. You know, a lot of us grew up with those movies where, um, you know, Doris Day would smack Rock Hudson, you know, slap him across the mm-hmm. face if he said something or did something, and. At one point, it was pretty acceptable for a woman to slap a man who was out of order. And, of course, that's yes. not the situation now, but it was perceived very differently 40 years ago than it is today. Um, yes, today, it is. if a woman does that, she's just, it, she's just as abusive as, as a man who does. But, in fact, it is different. If he slapped her across the face, it would have been a much more difficult, more physical um repercussions to that than if she slapped him. Mm-hmm. Am I right in that assumption? I think again, it depends upon the relationship, but when we get when we think of 
primary and secondary power. And that primary power dynamic is a person who has been born into an entitled power. They've never had to ask for the right to vote, ask for the opportunity to go to the best colleges, any of that. And that's that primary power is one that men have largely enjoyed, um, much more so than, than women, absolutely. And so I feel uncomfortable with justifying any kind of physical violence, but I think it's important, and I hope your listeners of all ages will also consider these intergenerational perceptions of power and violence. And as you were talking about, you women of a certain generation watching Doris Day, I've had women come and say, well, it was just a movie slap. It was really a nothing. But he used that to leverage the full force of the legal system against me, like the example you gave. And then that may be a woman, for example, the woman I'm thinking of, was she was in probably the early 60s. And then women who come to me who are in their early 20s. And many times it was their mother who was abused. And when these women in the early 20s then feel or see something happening in the dynamic of the relationship, from my perception, it, they are using then preemptive violence to say, this is something I'm not going to put up with. It's not going to happen to me. I saw my mother hurt. I'm not going to be that person. So I think there over the years it will be interesting to see how these intergenerational uh, dynamics and perceptions of power and strength informed through a gendered lens play a role in um, how women decide to take care of themselves, whatever that may look like for that individual woman. Yeah. Well, and uh, the other thing I think is that we don't talk about this very much. This isn't the no, conversation that most uh, parents have with their children. This is not a conversation that is, you know, across the coffee table um, or across the card table or whatever it is, you know, across the, the, the coffee, you know, the Starbucks table. People do not have this conversation. So no. when and if it happens to a woman, she's kind of left to her own devices to try and figure it out immediately on the spot what her response or reaction should be. Right. And I'm thinking of my my own children. I have three sons, and growing up and and friends with um, daughters and sons, and many times on the playground, you know, if if a little boy did something that was physical, and this happened to me when I was little, a little boy did something that was physical to a little girl, having teachers say, well, he just likes you. It's really not a big deal. And and now, having parents coach, I've, I've seen and watched this happen, and also with um, many of the women that I help, telling my daughter to have the first strike. Don't ever let a man get it over on Ooh. you. You've got to have the first strike. And that concerns me as well. I think the bottom line here is it's never okay for someone to start viewing physical force or violence as a way to navigate their relationship. There's obviously something going on. There needs to be intervention or everyone is at risk of being hurt, male, female, whatever. So that's what we need to be thinking of. Absolutely. That's what we need to be thinking in terms of as, as how do we raise our children, how do we live our own lives with integrity and 
are we putting our hands on other people and why? What does that look like? Yeah. And, you know, I I really, you know, feel strongly. We need to be talking about these issues. It shouldn't be something whispered about. It should be just talked about like like we talk in families about oh, you know, somebody got arrested for, you know, robbing a 7-Eleven, you know, and and parents right. will talk briefly to their children about why that would be wrong. Right. Um, we we need to have mm-hmm. these conversations, I think, with our children and um, somebody once asked me, um, at what age should you start talking to your children about domestic violence? And I said, mm-hmm. birth. You know, yes. you don't have to sit down and have a conversation at a mm-hmm. particular time. Mm-hmm. What you need to do is just make it a, the conversation a part of your life. Absolutely. You know, if something's on the radio mm-hmm. or in the newspaper that you see, mention it. You know, depending on how the age of the child, you can mention it in several different ways. You know, oh, you know, the, they they got into a fight and he hit her and he wasn't supposed to hit her, so that's yeah. why he went to jail. You know, something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and of course, as they're older, teen violence is such a huge issue right now that I think that as the child gets older and and enters that whole dating realm, we need mm-hmm. to get really specific about what we talk about. You know, um, yeah. it. it it will help them in the long run, and I think it will help their families in the long run. Um, so that's something I feel, you know, as a mother, that I, I felt very strongly about with my children. I don't want them to suddenly encounter a situation that they are not prepared in any way, shape, or form to recognize or, or understand how to respond to. Am I just yes. funny because I work in this field? <laughs> oh, I agree with you. I'm right there with you. Oh, good. Good. Well, um, again, I'm going to give out our phone number because I think this is such an, an interesting topic, and, and I hope that uh, uh, we can get some conversation going here. 646-378-0430. Again, 646-378-0430. Now let me play devil's advocate for a moment, Lisa, because um, I have gone, uh, you know, if you, if you Google domestic violence, you get fully um, two-thirds of the information that pops up is men's uh, groups or men's responses uh, to domestic violence. It's, it's very, um, I call them the men's rights group, and I'm not sure if that's the tag that most people are using or not. That's what I call them. Um, and these uh, men uh, are in organizations or whatever that are completely denying um, that domestic violence occurs and they put themselves forward as the victims. Um, they uh, project this information that um, yeah, men, men are victimized every bit as often, if not more so, from women. And then when they get tricked into uh, you know, the, the criminal justice system, they're treated even more unfairly in the criminal justice system. I disagree with that because I happen to do a lot of study in this area, but nevertheless, that's being projected. And I've seen something um, in the last couple of years where people, when they talk about domestic violence, are using a, of course, women can be abusers too. Well, they can, but it's a huge, huge difference in the uh, percentage of men who are abusers and the percentage of women who are uh, abusers. And here I'm talking about physical abuse. Um, I think that we've given this this notion that somehow or other men have been left out of this equation. 
And I have to tell you, I mean, I had a mother who was very abusive of my father who ultimately committed suicide uh, because of that abuse. So I am well aware of the power that an abusive uh, person can, can wield over the other person. But I'm also well aware that the proportion of women abusers is greatly exaggerated. Um, am I off base there? Tell me if I'm off base, but that's my feeling about it. And I'm concerned that with all of this um, concern about um, domestic violence being perpetrated by women, uh, physical violence being perpetrated by women, we're giving a false impression of just how frequently this occurs. And um, am, am I off base? Am I being overly sensitive? Or tell me what I'm doing here, Lisa. <laughs> Tell me what I'm doing, Lisa. I think you, you've put it you've put it very well, and I think um, I think we need to take a few steps back in terms of of the research and decades of research. In the 1970s, there were many um, rounds that started in the 70s of, of the Family Violence Survey, and these were research studies um, headed up spearheaded by Murray Strauss. Murray Strauss is responsible for creating the Conflict Tactics Scale. The conflict tactic scale is a research tool that counts blow for blow what one person has done to another person. So it's basically a tally list of who's hit whom and how many times. And any of us thinking about and talking about this issue really needs to be responsible for doing our own research. And that's what I encourage. I want people to understand the tool that is without context, that has shaped much of how the media portrays violence, women's violence, and much of the early research in this area. So if there is a study that you've read, others have read, that say that women are just as violent, if not more violent than men, chances are that that, that study was grounded in the conflict tactic scale. And by saying no, no context, I mean simply bl- the counting a blow for blow what one person has done to another gives you absolutely no idea of three core concepts. And those three core concepts are motivation, intent, and impact. So when... When I hear that someone has hurt, physically hurt someone else, and this is um, in addition to the coercive control, I want to know about that, I want to understand what was that individual's motivation, what was their intent, and what was the impact of that violence. We know that when, when men use violence against women, women are more likely to hurt, be hurt, Again, when men use violence against women, women are more likely to be hurt. When women use violence against men, women are more likely to be hurt. So we've got to keep asking ourselves, what's the research tool? And again, what's the motivation of that person? What do they want to see happen? Typically, when a woman woman uses violence, she's saying, stop. She is looking and searching and striving for personal autonomy. Typically, when a man is using violence against a partner in an abusive, battering situation, he's exercising authority. 
he's maintaining that whole framework of control and dominance over the long term. So we've really got to have a very clear understanding so much further beyond statistics in order to understand what people are doing and why and to answer many of these questions that are grounded in gender and an understanding of, of socialization. I've also read things that have uh, been put out that um, government statistics um, show that uh, women um, uh, batter as much as men, okay? And um, basically, what it's kind of a manipulation of, um, of uh, statistics. I mean, uh, I looked into one of those, <clears throat> excuse me, those government studies, and basically what the statistic, what the, the numbers were is, um, how many, you know, the likelihood of being um, beaten up. Yeah. And for men, it was just as high as it was for women. But the difference was that for men, it was external. It wasn't in the home. For women, it was by uh, a supposedly loving partner. So, yeah, yeah you can say that, um, you know, men... Uh, are, are beaten or hit or struck or whatever you want to call it as much as uh, women. But that's such a, uh, a phony portrait because, you know, uh, usually women aren't in a bar fight when they're 20. You know, uh, usually women are not beaten up and, uh, uh, at, in the locker room at school. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the numbers, it's really apples and oranges. Have you seen mm-hmm. that? Well, and that's yeah. with... With the research that I'm familiar with and also through the women's stories, I know unquestionably women are much more likely to be hurt um, by someone that they love rather than any kind of um, stranger violence. And also the histories and the the, um, sexual assault survivorship is another issue that goes hand in hand with domestic violence. Yeah. Yeah, I think it does too. Um, I also think that um, even though, and, and I'm I'm old. I told you I'm old, so I remember the first, the second wave of feminism. I don't remember the first wave when women went to get the vote, but I do remember the second wave, the the 70s, when um, uh, feminism and uh, differences between the genders um, became um, significant and, and became a, a public issue uh, during the 70s and. It, to me, it, it was a time when people were really exploring, you know, what was some of the common stuff that was happening uh, between the genders and also, you know, how we're treating women differently. So if we look back on that second wave of feminism, we have a group of women who um, were raised to think that, you know, they could do anything that a man could do. Yes. Does that include hitting and violence? I mean, do we have a generation of people who are, are comfortable with the idea that women um, can use violence just like men can? You know, or when do we still have that whole uh, that whole scenario where women are are taught to be sweet and nice and yeah, I I think that that depends upon family structure and society, but the, I'm thinking also along these same terms. I remember seeing a Virginia Slims commercial of a woman smoking, and it's saying, you've come a long way, baby. And, yeah, 
women have come a long way. We've, we've gained tremendous amounts of access to equity. We can get lung cancer at rates just as high as men if we smoke just as much as men do. And that example is to say that um, any kind of behavior, when it becomes accessible to a population, again, we've got to take that step back and look at the context, look at socialization, and why why? What's the motivation for using the violence? Again, is it searching for autonomy or is it exercising authority? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unfortunately, when things get hot and bothered and, and conflict arises, none of us tends to think logically. Um, I, I think that that's one of the reasons why I advocate talking about things all along in mar- in, um, in life so that you kind of have it there. Um, you know, we, we inculcate into our children that if you come to a curb, you look both ways before you step off of it. I think we need to um, drill in some of those other safety issues, like, you know, if you are in an altercation, this is what you can do or this is what you need to think about and have those things um, available uh, without uh, uh, taking them by surprise. Yes, and that's a great deal. Absolutely. That's a a great deal of the time that we spend in the intervention and support groups that I run. It's really exploring what what our alternatives are in relationships, what those look like, and not necessarily the alternatives that a therapist or a social worker or whomever may be tells you that you should have, but alternatives that a woman sees as viable in terms of getting herself out, of keeping herself safe, of keeping others safe from her, whatever it may be, really having those conversations and a safe place to explore what is it that I can do, what alternatives do I have? Because often, again, we will resort to you know, that whole idea of fight or flight. If you find yourself in a situation where you, you feel threatened, what would you do? And I think many people can't answer that question until they're really in that moment. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right, and I think it's our duty as parents and um, relatives and aunts and uncles and sisters and brothers to help other people understand that, um, to to have that in their bag of tricks as they grow up and as they face the world. That's just my little soapbox, folks. And <laughs> I, I also I wish, though, that schools, and I, I don't know about Washington State, but I wish that schools across the nation would build in so much of these conversations at an earlier age before teens are beginning to date of what healthy relationships look like, what are personal boundaries, how do I deserve to be treated in a relationship, how does all of that look and feel and have role models and have access to that because it can be very, very isolating for people when they're going through these things and they have everything else in terms of adolescence and peer pressure to deal with and they don't have a vocabulary yet or a means to navigating it. So I I really think that it's the responsibility of our communities, the parents, yes, having those conversations at home, but also within our communities in a safe place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and especially 
as I said, I guess we're I'm I'm kind of going a little bit off topic and talking about uh, rearing young people, but especially with dating violence being such a huge issue, um, yeah. and a lot of young women uh, seem to think that it's 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 okay, it's okay. This is just the way of the world, you know. Um, and my heart breaks for those those young women. Um, it really does. So yes, and like, also well, for um, we are starting. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was also going to point no, out no, was, that, that young men also being able to give all young people a voice and so that they're not, that that should be thought of as a primary prevention measure before things are happening that we're talking about them and dealing with them will be a key to no one hopefully using or feeling that they have to resort to some sort of violence in their relationships. Yes, I think you are right. And um, I think we also, especially in this day and age, have to be aware not only of what is not acceptable in a relationship, i.e. the control, the power, and especially uh, physical assault, physical uh, violence. We also have to be aware of what we can do about that. And I think it's important for women to get this kind of information from you, Lisa, so that we can, we can know what's going on or what's the potential uh, for going on in our lives, and uh, not only when things are good, but when things are, are bad. And um, I, I really appreciate your sharing this information with us. Um, Thank you. And I do hope I... I'm, I'm, I'm going to jump in real quickly and encourage people to take a look at our, our website that has a great deal of resources oh, yes. in this area, and it's CSS Washtenaw, which is W A S H. T-E-N-A-W dot org backslash renew. You want to get that again? Sure. C-S-S-W-A-S-H-T-E-N-A-W dot org backslash renew. And there's contact information for me, articles, audio conferences. We had a 2010 conference on women's use of force and we have all the materials from that conference all kinds of resources and please don't hesitate to reach out to me uh, for further guidance yeah yeah and um, I think that one of the things that I'd like to throw in there is if you are sensing difficulty in your relationship and I'm not talking about where you've got bruises and bangs or anything like that I'm just talking about if you're sensing that there might be some difficulty, the worst thing you can do is to just stuff that in the back of your mind. You need to address that and you need to look at that because I can guarantee you that whatever difficulty you sense is going to be an, an, a, a very blatant difficulty down the road. So I would suggest that you find a local uh, group, domestic violence group, women's shelter. If you uh, find a group like that, even if you don't want to leave your relationship, it will finding that group, finding that organization will help you get support and broaden your information base for if you have to deal with something like that uh, later on. And again, it's the whole idea of preparation. If you know what could be a possibility and you think about what could happen, then you've got yourself armed a little bit for if it does happen. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Thank you for saying that. We all need to be reminded of that. (laughs) 
And uh, I really, uh, really uh, caution women that they need to get information um, before something bad happens. And I think that the local domestic violence shelters are a great place to start. Um, I'm holding off here. You can hear me tapping because I usually have the domestic violence hotline number at my uh, uh, elbow here, but for some reason I don't have it right now. So I'm going to look it up so I can give that out. Okay. And National Domestic Violence Hotline. Here we go. And the reason that you can use this number is that they can refer you to a local a local organization that could be helpful. So the National uh, Domestic Violence Hotline, 1-800-799-7233. That's 1-800-799-7233. And they can talk with you. They can refer you to someplace local. And I can't emphasize enough, you don't have to wait until something horrible happens to contact um, a domestic violence resource. Do it before something bad happens, and you will be much stronger and much more uh, well informed if and when it does happen. So, and um, you know, want, you want to give out that web address one more time, Lisa, because it's kind of a complicated one. Yes, it is. It's c s s w a s h t e n a w dot org backslash renew okay and it's css like charlie sam sam yes it is okay good good great resources there you know uh, one of the things that i do lisa is or at least i try to do at every show is to come up with a quote that um is kind of a, a a symbol for what we talked about that day and, you know, I had a devil of a time finding one today. Um, are there any quotes that you're familiar with uh, that you might tell our listeners to kind of tuck in their mind? I think that I think learning how to be your own best friend and advocate for yourself. No, that's not a quote, but it is. it should be and is a mantra for each one of us. Mm-hmm. And taking that yeah. forward and realizing that whatever we're going through and whatever we need to help other people with, uh, that it will get better, and there are resources out there for you. Yes, you don't have to do this alone. You don't have to do it alone. One of the biggest concerns that I have about situations where a woman uh, has used violence and uh, enters the criminal justice system because of it is, is custody of the children. If a woman uses violence, is she really at danger for losing custody of her children? Absolutely. Many times that is something that is um, right there. As far as, and, and many times the manipulation that she has endured is it's purposeful in an attempt to get her to lose her children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because if you're talking power and over someone, What's the, the the biggest source of power somebody has over you if you have children? It's the children. Right. You'll do anything mm-hmm. to protect your children. You will do anything to, to help your children. Um, and if you use you know, the threat of losing the children uh, with a woman, she'll pretty much cave and do whatever you want, I think. 
Am I wrong there, Lisa? Absolutely not. No, uh, many women see themselves in that situation. Yes. Well, the um, end of the show has arrived, I'm afraid. I could still keep talking. I don't know about you, Lisa, but um, <laughs> Oprah Winfrey is always good for a quote, and I'm going to say what she said. doesn't matter who you are or where you came from. The ability to triumph begins with you. And that can mean not only taking action, but also showing restraint and getting the information for what you need to do in your life. Thank you so much for joining us, Three Women, Three Ways. Join us next week, please, and uh, have a good week. Thank you very much.